This episode of Killer Mediums has been brought to you by Zencaster. Zencaster is my podcast recording station of choice. Not only does it make it easy for me to reach out to guests and to coordinate interviews without a bunch of create account prompts, but it also has a bunch of cool production tools for the back end of recordings, including a filler word removal feature that automatically removes all the ums and the ahs that plague my interviews. It saved me so much time on the editing floor. Uh, Want to get started? Go to Zencaster.com slash pricing and use my code KILLERMEDIUMS with no space. You'll get 30% off your first three months of Zencaster Professional. I want you to have the same easy experience as I do for all my podcasting and content needs. It is time to share your story. Foreigners tied bells to everybody in the morgue. So if they heard a ting, they knew somebody down there wasn't quite ready to go. Hey listeners, uh, this is William Sterling and you are listening to the Killer Mediums podcast where we talk about all your favorite horror tropes and how they manifest across all your favorite mediums of entertainment. Today's topic is Hollywood horror, and we are joined by guest Brian McCauley. As a warning, this is a very spoiler-heavy podcast, so if you want to avoid spoilers for any of today's topics, especially Nope, Curse of the Reaper, or the Twilight Zone episode, A World of Difference, then you should definitely turn back now. But with all of that said and out of the way, here we go. Let's get spooky. Brian, thank you so much for joining us. How the hell are you doing today? I am fantastic. Thrilled to be here. Thanks for having me. Woo! Um, so let's let's kick this thing off with just uh, kind of a who are you for listeners? Um, what is your niche in the horror community or the niche in the the writing creatives community? Um, get, sell us on yourself. Yeah, I um, my name is Brian McCauley. <laughs> I uh, uh, started in in the film and TV world. I live in LA. Uh, I went to film school and have been working as a film and TV writer for about a decade. Um, I've done various lifetime movie thrillers, um, some, some indie work. Uh, I also worked on, wrote an episode of Fuller House and sold an original show to sci-fi, um, but decided to take a sidestep and get into fiction writing and wrote my first novel, Curse of the Reaper, um, which is a Hollywood horror story, as we'll talk about today. Um, and yeah, it's been a joy now to kind of have one foot in both worlds with the film and TV of it all and the fiction writing. Um, yeah. So this is really fun for me because most of the guests that I talk to have been just like fully entrenched in the horror side of things, their entire creative life. Uh, the one notable exception I've got kind of on my mind, I interviewed Josh Rubin the other day and he kind of went the comedy to horror route. Um, but you've had your fingers in all sorts of pies here. Like Fuller House is <laughs> hilarious. And then you jump into sci-fi, which like sometimes sci-fi stuff has that horror slant to it, but it's still definitely its own beast. Um, and now you're in horror also. So you're just like hitting all over the place. And from what I know, like you're batting a thousand right now. So I guess first question just for you specifically, before we dive into any of the topics how <laughs> is there a different approach you need to take for each of the different genres or is it all just kind of like creative process is creative process like 
I don't know, maybe walk us through that a little bit. Yeah, no, it's a great question. And definitely for me, like all all storytelling, no matter what genre, uh, I like there to be drama at the heart of it, of like character-driven drama. Like if I don't care about the characters, I'm not going to laugh. I'm not going to be scared. I'm not going to cry. So for me, that's kind of the heart across no matter what genre I'm working in. Horror has always been my 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 love from a very young age. But when it comes to career, like saying yes to opportunities that present themselves has been has worked out for me. Um, you know, it's and it's fun. It's funny, like having written these lifetime movie thrillers that are, you know, they're psychological thrillers are not quite horror, but they're also at least when I write them, they're very kind of tongue in cheek. So there is some some humor mixed in. Uh, and so, yeah, to branch into Fuller House, I had an opportunity to, to write an episode there. It's uh, it was fun to just kind of flex a totally different muscle um, where it's kind of like, well, you have to have a, a, a joke joke, like at least one or two per page of the script. There's like specific mandates around these kinds of things. Um, but yeah, for me coming back with Curse of the Reaper was a was an opportunity to kind of meld a little bit of all of that experience of working in Hollywood, of comedy, of horror, of of the kind of meta of it all. So I like that. In my head over here, I'm consciously trying to reserve so many Curse of the Reaper questions <laughs> for when we actually get to Curse of the Reaper. Um, but I think that that comedy slant to things definitely plays up really well in the novel. It keeps the the pacing interesting it's not just horror 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 down the dark spiral we go um it's hilarious at times especially when we get into uh kind of the reapers little quippy (laughs) one-liners and you have you have this really cool talent for that like just even watching you on twitter like people will i've seen multiple times where people throw out little like reaper ish scenarios to you and immediately you're jumping on it with this <laughs> with this one liner joke that the reaper would have come up with it's like damn i assumed i assumed when he was writing this that would have taken him like a month to just like go through that scene and be like i need the perfect joke for this but no you're just like knocking him out <laughs> it's it's definitely a little bit of both cuz I, I agonized over some of those reaper punchlines uh, but it's been really fun on Twitter to just be a bit more flippant about like responding as the character and, and coming coming up with the off the cuff stuff of it all. But uh, yeah, and that the sort of mix of horror comedy, I mean, Jordan Peele, as we'll get into, I'm sure is is a master of balancing those both as well. And I think because horror and comedy are such visceral genres, like they are they're aiming to get a physical reaction out of you, um, whether it's a laugh or a scare. Uh, And the balance of like, in order to achieve that scare, you need to lull people into a sense of security with a a little bit of humor, a little release the tension, then pop it up again. Um, So it's, it's fun to play with both, I think, for that reason. Yeah. So in season one, we had an episode about horror comedies with Damien Casey, uh, who's another, another horror author. And we talked about how like the setup for a good joke is the same as the setup for a good scare. Um, if, if you're good at one of them, you're going to be good at the other one, too. You've just got to figure out exactly which blade to stick in the listener or which uh, which joke to throw at the viewer or, you know, whatever it be. Um, but I think there's also this critical element of it where you've got to know how story wise overall when to throw one or the other at a person because too many jokes and it starts to feel not horror enough and too many scares and the the scares start to kind of lose their edge yeah. so 
like you're saying, Jordan Peele does this really, really well in in all of his movies and the Monkey Paw productions is you get these great moments of levity that let you breathe. And then when he knocks the breath back out of you again, your lungs are full. So there's something to like freak out about again. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's interesting. Cause I think that, you know, horror comedy is its own subgenre, but I don't think that's what I do. And I don't actually, I wouldn't say that's what Jordan Peele's movies are either. They're, they're just mm-hmm. horror that has comedy and humor built into it for that purpose. Whereas you know, a film like like Shaun of the Dead is like primarily it's a comedy film that's that's playing right. in the realm of the horror genre, but it's it's kind of a different beast, I think. Yeah. Sorry, I, I dove too deep into that conversational end, I guess. So horror comedies kind of exist on a spectrum, right? Like there is no comedy in hereditary oh, yeah. uh, unless you are very, very, very dark of a human being. <laughs> um, and then, yeah, Shaun of the Dead is the exact opposite end of the spectrum, but so, okay, so if we're talking about subgenres, let's let's just go ahead and nail down what we're actually here to talk about today then. So, yeah. Hollywood horror. Let's try to figure out a definition here because I feel like there are a lot of horror movies that take place in Hollywood. Is this just a setting that we're talking about here today or is this is this an approach to the story that we're trying to wrap our heads around? Yeah, it's it's interesting because I think I do think that Hollywood as a setting has its own like hor- horror to it to to unearth and explore um you know it, it's its own kind of haunted house in a way uh and it also is steeped in in history and also offers the opportunity for for like, like a, a meta approach of course of like well if you're talking about if you, especially if you're making a movie that touches on hollywood then you're already got a layer of meta awareness where you know we're we're in a world where movies are made so there's there's an interesting kind of layer to it there um and, yeah and it's it's like you know a big influence for me the a film that i love is sunset boulevard which is billy wilder which actually comes back again to like he's 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 a very much a comedy director but also does these dramas that have comedy in them and that movie is not really a a horror movie but it deals with the horrors of hollywood like the the uh yeah, just the the ageism, the sexism, like it's all kind of baked into this world because, uh, because like Hollywood is as as a, we'll get deeper into, like really tends to kind of capitalize on on human beings and, uh, yeah, dr- drain them of their life force sometimes. I think I've, we've done a couple of episodes where kind of the setting is the trope, so like the cabin in the woods. That's right. That is a like tried and true horror trope, like for good reason. There's a lot of baggage that comes along with it, but just the depth of what we get to get into here with Hollywood horror is very unique um, because it's not just a setting. It's not just a place. To, it, it's an entire lifestyle. Like we, we mention Hollywood horror and uh, immediately people are going to have like these uh, pre- preconceptions about um, sleazy directors and Weinstein figures and uh, starlets moving out to Hollywood looking for their big break and not getting it and uh, the the Manson murders and there's so much baggage that comes along with this setting like it's it, it's cool uh, it, it's this whole world that we get to place a story in just by saying like a city's name yeah i think that's a good point and a good distinction right from like the cabin in the woods 
can so many different stories can be told in that setting as as the film cabin in the woods <laughs> really <laughs> leaned into um but with hollywood it tends to be like look the 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 themes tend to be recurring across different stories told in in hollywood like you know themes of identity themes of uh like aspirational stories of, as you're saying, like people who really are striving to be seen. And, um, and then, yeah, the, the flip side of abuse of exploitation, those tend to be kind of recurring elements in the Hollywood horror stories. So let's, let's take that definition and let's take that concept and let's drive, drive on into our first big topic for the day. Um, so listeners, I've already dropped the spoiler tag in the intro. If you're still here, like just buckle up. Um, we are going to talk first about Nope. Uh, so Brian, if, if you would like to, could you set the stage for Nope for us? What is this movie about? What is the Hollywood horror slant that it takes? And we can go ahead and jump into the ending too, because, um, I, I think that's a critical part of this. Yeah. Uh, this is a hard movie to like pitch and synopsize, <laughs> um, but it's set... that's why I gave it to you. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, it's set just it's set really interestingly, kind of on the outskirts of Hollywood, and uh, interest. It's set in the the Agua Dulce Santa Clarita area, which is where Hollywood filmed a lot of westerns, and actually where my very first job on a sitcom was strangely was in Santa Clarita um (laughs) okay so but the film for nope is is about this family um OJ and M are siblings uh their father died in a very strange prologue accident of a a nickel falling from the sky and killing him um but they are yeah he's uh OJ is struggling to keep the the ranch afloat they they do trained animals for for Hollywood um and M has some kind of side gigs. Uh, and one of the people they do dealings with is Jupe, who is a former child sitcom star who was in this tragically horrific accident where an, an ape went wild on set and killed everybody except for Jupe. Um, and then there are also aliens. <laughs> they realize that there may or may not be aliens and they set out with a goal to capture and what what I love about this movie and having watched it the second time now and I should also say I'm a I'm a screenwriting teacher so I tend to nerd out about like structure and things uh but which is perfect for this podcast oh, oh, it's just <laughs> like um it it even though it's like on the surface level Jordan Peele's like strangest movie it's like so structurally tight and clear and there's a really clear external goal that M and OJ and M is the really driving force who says like, we're going to get the Oprah shot. That is our, our external goal in this story. We need to get that money shot and get paid off of it. And that money shot being like the, the actual clear evidence that there is a UFO here. Um, and that's kind of the, where the, the narrative takes off. Yeah. Um, so like you were saying, this is a Jordan Peele movie, and I, I feel like anybody listening to the show is going to know that. Um, but fun with Jordan Peele is not only does he tell great horror stories, they're almost always horror stories with a message. Um, so 
get out uh, simultaneously managed to talk tackle uh soft racism and loud racism <laughs> all in one fell swoop uh the dinner party scene at the beginning where the dad is saying all of these very off the cuff things and like you're cringing because like oh god it's like watching my dad trying to not say racist things um <laughs> and then we get into the second half of the movie and it's like oh shit um with with the way everybody's being treated there and i i didn't drop a spoiler tag for get out or us so i'm gonna avoid too many spoilers there but um suffice it to say he's tackling racism in the modern era in in uh get out then we go to us and it's a this big commentary on poverty so we get to nope and kind of the first thing I was looking for as a viewer was, okay, what's the commentary with this one? What is he trying to expose readers, readers, expose viewers to? And in the confines of an alien movie, because it's really cool for that. And oh my gosh, the creature design once everything blows up. Beautiful. But in the confines of that, he tells this really gripping story about how Hollywood as an industry kind of treats its fringe actors, its fringe like support staff and everybody else built into the industry. Um, We know the big Hollywood starlets and the multi-million dollar mansions and deals that they live in, but I know it's a very different story for people like the horse trainer on sets uh as as nope shows us or the b-list actors the the what is the name for the person that shows up on set and they're just in the background that day Uh, background extra there we go the extras (laughs) it's a very different story for the extras Um, (laughs) perfect thank you so as somebody who who is in the industry uh been writing scripts been working on these sorts of sets um from your perspective do you feel like jordan peele gets this right I mean, a million times, yes. It's, I mean, <laughs> and it is as you as you noted, and it's really refreshing for for a Hollywood horror story to to set its sights on like the the crew, right? You know, essentially like the the people who come to set for that one day to deal with the, you know, my my Fuller House episode had a falcon in it for a marriage proposal scene to Kimmy Gibbler. Uh, so I got to see like an animal wrangler <laughs> coming to set with the Falcon and those people, yeah, they come to set for one day and then they're gone and they're the, it's like this mysterious, like, well, that's their whole job. And so to focus on, on this family enterprise that like, that dates all the way back to the very first film as, as M says is, is fascinating. Cause again, it's about, you know, the, this industry was built on the labor of, of these people that. Um, do all the grunt work and so it was refreshing to have a Hollywood horror film that wasn't focused on the stars and the auditions and all of that but to for it to be a much more grounded story on the outskirts in Santa Clarita Um, and it's you know it it starts with a bible quote which is I I had forgotten when I rewatched it Um, that is I will cast abominable filth at you make you vile and make you a spectacle and to me, that like is the the view of Hollywood that it that I think the monster represents. That it's this Hollywood is a monstrous machine that chews people up, and it spits out filth in order to to capitalize on the spectacle of it. Um, and it could not be more literal in this movie. 
I totally missed that quote. Yeah. <laughs> but that is so, I, I don't want to say on the nose because that paints in a bad light, but that is so like, that is such a good summary of everything. This movie seems like it's driving towards. Yeah. Um, and then, and then it becomes so literal, like you're saying when, uh, the, uh, the UFO alien, do we ever get a name for the thing or um, they what should it, they refer to this? They as? call it blue, blue shit. Blue jeans? Is it blue jeans? Blue jeans? That's right, blue jeans. Because yeah. because they named it after the, the after the horse. Yes, um, that's right. Um, but after blue jean sucks up all of these spectators, including a couple of former actors and actresses, literally chews them up, and we get this amazing raining blood scene on the house. Incredible is. I feel like out of all of. Jordan Peele's movies, the two visuals that are going to stick with me more than anything else is the the main character picking cotton to free himself in Get Out, trying to trying to get out of the chair. Damn it, I don't have any spoilers for Get Out. Like I wasn't going to. Whatever, we're there now. <laughs> um, just that visual is so horrifying and beautiful and like perfect in its parallel. Like. Ah, yeah. Um, and then the the mirror scenes in us, and then that's the one for this movie is this this UFO just pouring blood and guts and car keys and nickels and anything else on this house uh, that that dared to stand up to it. Yeah, uh, that dared to question what was going on in that little valley. It's um, it, it's just. Oh, it's so striking. I love it. Yeah, it's it's a stunning. And as you said, it comes off the back of the scene at at Jupe's uh, the spectacle that Jupe has arranged for everybody to see the UFO because he thinks that he has tamed it. Um, yes. And it is almost exactly midway through the movie, which in screenwriting terms, usually a midpoint is a big kind of revelation and turning point that changes your understanding of what's happening. And this definitely does that. Um, yeah. And seeing that. Oh God, that shot of of Jupe with like the shadows of people swirling or, or getting sucked up. Um, and it's incredible. And I think, you know, this time I also was paying more attention to to names and things like that spectacle is called the Star Lasso Experience, which is like it just immediately like, of course, he's like, gonna... star has double meaning of like, you know, stars above and then movie stars. And like he's trying to lasso the stars, but also it makes you think about the way that you know, human beings in Hollywood movie stars are just kind of lassoed and wrangled around. Um, and what's really, I just listened to an interview with Jordan Peele this week, and he said that Universal Studios added that set as a permanent attraction at like Universal Studios where you can go and walk through. So like, could not be more meta than to add this, this, this spectacle to an actual attraction at an amusement park where people, I don't know what actually happens there. Hopefully they're not getting sucked up i'm not sky. going there <laughs> <laughs> there is no chance yep. i'm walking into that place. yeah yeah and it's uh yeah and the other and also yeah uh, the 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 whole place uh that he's running the kind of old west world is called jupiter's claim which to me calls to mind like colonialism and like you know wild west was was all about colonialism and and invading lands and taking what's there and um and at some point it's interesting because uh oj says like it's an animal it's territorial and it thinks that this is its home 
Um, so it, it's interesting to see the way that he plays with those, that Peel plays with those themes as well. Yeah. Okay. So we're, we're driving into another point I wanted to try to make with this movie um, with, with the taming of an animal or the perceived taming of an animal or treating things like they can be just kind of wrangled and forced to do what you want them to. We, we see that as a repeating thing with the UFO. Oh, we're just going to get it to do this and then we'll get our shot. And then it goes off and does something totally different. That theme transcends just the UFO. And I feel like it's so applicable to uh, first the animals on all of the sets that, that we see. Uh, the the chimp that they are trying to train, trying to get be like the centerpiece of this TV show that just suddenly snaps and goes, here we go, ape shit. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> or the the horse that OJ has tamed and the, the horse just kicks one day on set because nobody's really listening to OJ and they're not really following his directions. Uh, so, so the horse kicks. I feel like watching these trained animals get to their breaking point is also part of the commentary on the Hollywood stuff. Um, we see uh, all of the people in this industry also treating other people that way, especially like OJ and M and the way that they're kind of bossed around on set. The couple of times we see them there, it feels like this very, similar reflection to what's going on with the chimp what's going on with the horse you kind of you feel oj reaching his breaking point of like why the fuck am i doing this or like something something to that effect like he's getting to some sort of a point of like i am tired of being disrespected um i don't know what, what thoughts there am i am i driving down the wrong road no absolutely it's absolutely it, yeah and it's it's interesting because once once we get into the third act and oj really kind of comes into his power as like the driving force of the narrative because i think m's kind of driving it for most of act two and then they get they get the blood rain and they have their low yeah. moment of eating eating burgers and they're kind of giving up um and it's oj who's like no we have to we have to we have to tame this thing and what he says is it's big it's bad it's got spirit but anything with a spirit can get broke and that i feel like speaks to that theme that you're touching on that just like it's almost like he knows from having worked in hollywood that like it's all about just having your spirit broken and then you you'll be you can be easily controlled um and i think that yeah that that speaks so much to that theme of like training animals and humans the same way yeah um we've gotten very bleak with this yeah. <laughs> painting this picture that hollywood's like the worst place in the world like everybody that goes there I is gonna like, get broken down and destroyed and i feel like um, me t- especially i feel like all i do these days is just talk shit on hollywood while i'm like trying to get <laughs> movies made i should probably <laughs> tone, it, tone it down a bit but it is i feel like I I need to like while we're on that topic, dude. The quote of the movie for me is is from the cinematographer Holst, who I love that character. I love that actor, um, Michael Wincott, who is just like the most grit voiced like villain from The Crow and everything else. Um, yeah. But he's on when they call when M calls him to come do the job, and he turns he turns her down. He before he hangs up, he says, "This dream you're chasing." 
the one where you wake up at the top of the mountain, all eyes on you. It's the dream you never wake up from. And then he just hangs up. <laughs> and it's like, and she's like, he just said some cryptic shit and hung up. I don't know. Um, <laughs> but I feel like that's the that's the the Hollywood dream, right? That whole like, you want to get to the top of the mountain, you want all the eyes to be on you. That's the dream. And for him to say, that's the dream you never wake up from. It's like, like what what I read that as is it's death. Like that's that's the end. Like it's it's not like like don't chase that. Um, and then that's what he literally does at the end of the film. He goes to the top of a mountain and gets sucked up into the into the alien <laughs> and gets his his money <laughs> shot as he does. But it's wild how wonderfully literal some of these themes become. Yeah. I okay so let's let's sit on that scene for just a second because that is I think the one piece of this movie that I do not like and maybe you can shed some light on it for me so he goes up to the top of the mountain which I get to get the money shot which I get that has been his driving passion for however long Uh, And we saw him back at home obsessing over this like film of animals being predatory towards each other. And like uh, all of this, like the wilderness is brutal sort of thing. So I get even why he's putting himself in harm's way to get this shot. But then he gets sucked up by the alien and he brings the camera with him. Mm -hmm. I think if this is the shot that you've been fighting for your entire life, wouldn't your instinct to be to like throw that camera down at the last second so that the shot lives on after you're gone? Or is is there something else going on here? Well, it's interesting because he so he when she first called that phone call, he says that she says, we're looking for the impossible shot. And and he says, that's impossible. Um, (laughs) And right before he he goes off on his big that going up on the hill, he says to Angel, uh, like, we don't deserve the impossible. So he's calling back to that very directly. Um, And I think that he's having this recognition that like chasing that shot, like part of, I think the Hollywood horror story also involves like sacrificing yourself at the altar of Hollywood. And that's kind of what I read in that moment of like his ultimate sacrifice. Like he's such a, uh, you can tell that he's such a like disillusioned man who's like shot everything in every angle for forever. And this is the one thing that he's probably never shot, but I feel like his realization in the end is that like it, it's, it's not, we don't even, we don't deserve it. So I'm going to shoot it, but then get it sucked up into the monster with me. And so I'm going to get it, but it's not going to be wit. It's not going to be shared or witnessed, but I don't know. It's a, it's a hard one to wrap the brain around. Okay, I can get into that. So like the the perfect shot, the the impossible shot exists, but none of you get to see it. I'm taking it with me. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Um, So thinking through the trajectory of the rest of this episode, I know we're just going to get darker and darker with some of this shit. So (laughs) can we pause here for just a second? Do you have any lighthearted positive anecdotes about Hollywood you know give us an upper for a second like it's not all awful no it is it is a joy it can be pure (laughs) joy to be on set and actually like making that magic and seeing you know seeing on the other end after so many people have worked so hard to create this thing just not just in production but in editing room and all of that um and you know working on on Fuller House like we filmed 
in front of a live studio audience and I worked on I worked on season one. So it was a big it was a big deal to a lot of people. I didn't I, to be honest, did not grow up watching Full House. Um, I was yeah. too busy watching like, are you afraid of the dark? Um, so <laughs> so it was uh, but to be to witness that spectacle and be, you know, on in the studio when we were shooting with this with the audience who, you know, it meant so much to them was really, really fun. Like it's a really like live theatrical kind of experience. Um, and then it all gets, yeah, pieced together in the editing room. You get to see the final product and it's, yeah, it's, it's a magical that that's, I think the other thing about Hollywood that connects to horror is that there is a, there is like supernatural magic happening here. Like that's the phrase that gets used. Like let's make magic. We're making magic. Um, that's where it's cause we're, we're taking all these disparate things and turning sets into like, make it look like they're real houses. And we're again, editing this footage together in such a way that like, you have no idea that this, the question in one shot was recorded an hour before the answer because they did multiple t- It's just like, it defies space and time. It makes no sense the way that these things come together. And that's the magic of it all. So magic has good too. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> So, double-edged sword. I don't think I'm using that phrase. I right always, right every now. time <laughs> I use that phrase, I'm like, wait a second, how? Which is that? Um, and also, the alien in in Nope is beautiful. It is just a beautiful, right, like gorgeous spectacle unto itself. Just to again, a positive thing of just like, wow, the way that it just like unfurls with different colors and just like, ah, oh, it's it's gorgeous. Yeah, I yeah, let's let's end on that positive positive note. It looks like this I think you just said it perfectly. This, this like flower blooming or something and you know the destruction at its core and the carnage that this thing is inflicting and about to inflict. Yeah. Um and yet you can't look away. Um I cannot think of very many other times that I've seen something created through CGI that was so a realistic looking uh, and be so just like imaginative and clearly not realistic. Like it, it walks that line so perfectly of being something that's familiar enough to us that we can contextualize it. Yeah. And also just blowing our freaking minds with its creativity. Yep. Like it's, it's such a great twist on the UFO that the UFO is actually an, the organic alien unto itself. And then not only that, but then the way, as you said, that it like unfurls and becomes this just like beautiful thing to, to bear witness to. And the whole point of it is that you're not supposed to look it in the eye. Like they discover at a certain point that that's how you become vulnerable to it, but you can't look away. And again, that's the theme, right? Of like the spectacle of, of, of like, tragedy and and things like that it's like that like you can't you can't stand to to not witness the spectacle okay i don't have this thought fully formed so if we go nowhere with this (laughs) apologies is there maybe a connection to hollywood there too like don't look too directly at like how the hot dog's being made um just recognize this like beautiful creation for what it is and take it at face value and kind of like enjoy it but if you stare at it too long it's going to eat you 
That's a good. I mean, yeah, that, know, that the, the alien <laughs> definitely. Once you get sucked up into it, it does look like it's packaging you into a hot dog <laughs> before it spits you out. <laughs> oh god! All of those shots in the first half of the movie that are showing the inside of the alien, and you hear the screaming. It's like, I don't know what's going on here. This is kind of weird. And then the second half, once you get it, it's like, oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it's incredible. Yeah. One of the most horrifying things in this movie to me is the fact that the UFO doesn't eat the people immediately. Like, just sits with them for this long time, apparently. And you can hear the screaming all the way back down on the earth. Yeah, like they're just being like slowly digested. And the way that he shoots it is so great because it's just very simple, tight shots that are more evocative and make you fill in the blanks of what is actually happening. Um very claustrophobic and yeah it's it's yeah. <laughs> uh okay any more thoughts on nope before i drive us towards the twilight zone i don't think so i think let's let's head into the next dimension all right <laughs> thank you rod sterling <laughs> um so with this Twilight Zone episode, let me make sure I get the name right here. A World of Difference. Um, I'll go ahead and set this one up. I'll, I'll take the layup since I gave you the hard one a second ago. Um, with this episode, um, the, the basic story here, the basic premise of this episode is that we have an actor, get the names right, uh, Jerry Reagan. Um, who is on set one day and he is in character and then all of a sudden his character looks over and sees the director and the cameraman and everybody else on set there and it breaks this fourth wall of imagining that he's on the set. So Jerry Reagan starts freaking out and saying that his name is Arthur Curtis and apparently... He has assumed the identity of this character that he was playing so wholly that he thinks he really is Arthur Curtis. Um, And we see Arthur Curtis running around Hollywood panicking uh, in the shoes of Jerry Reagan's life. Um, Apparently, Jerry Reagan's a really horrific person. (laughs) (laughs) We've got an estranged wife that is mad at him, and we've got producers that are ready to drop him the second he does something wrong. And uh, Curtis is just running around trying to deal with all of this and eventually makes his way back to set and like hides back in the confines of this this, uh, set that's been built for him. Uh, and the, the wife that he's been waiting on since the beginning of the episode comes in and he like falls into her arms, like, let's get out of here. And he goes and he retreats back into the story. Uh, and in real life, Jerry Reagan disappears, um, because, because he's gone, he's in the story now. It's this really weird head trippy meta sort of a story trying to piece together like, all right, what's real here? Is this really Andrew Curtis? Is this really Jerry Reagan? Like, what? what, what, Huh? (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think it's a really cool building block towards Curse of the Reaper. But I want to I want to give you the stage here to talk about this Twilight Zone episode as much as you want, um, because I don't have. I don't have a ton of thoughts about this episode other than, okay, that was cool and meta. Yeah. 
uh, <laughs> at a time when meta was not really done yet. I think Twilight Zone was always great about that. Yeah. Um, but it, it's unique in its boldness. It's unique in this it kind of meta commentary. I don't know. Well, what made it stand out to you? Yeah, it's interesting. Like, you know, writing a book, and there's a there's a there are a lot of conscious influences that I'm aware of and remember, and then there are ones that I have forgotten. And when you and I first started talking about doing Hollywood horror, I was like, okay, well, I want to, you know, we have the book with my book. Nope. Once I saw Nope, I was like, well, that's the film we got to talk about. And then I was like, well, I want to do a TV thing. What would be a good TV thing? And then I remembered this episode and I actually wrote a paper on this episode in undergrad. I took a psychoanalysis class and I analyzed this this episode through the lens of Jacques Lacan's like mirror stage of human development. And so it was a funny thing for me to like remember like, oh, this ep-? and rewatching it for our talk. I haven't seen it since college. And I was like oh, this was like, this clearly imprinted in my brain and greatly influenced Curse of the Reaper. Um, but just to focus on this story, like I, well, first of all, little bridge is that Jordan Peele rebooted the Twilight Zone. So this is uh-huh. total natural segue, <laughs> um, especially when yeah. I just shoehorn it in like that and <laughs> derail myself. Uh, also, love, so Richard Matheson wrote this episode um, who wrote a bunch of Twilight Zone episodes, was a screenwriter and also famously a novelist and fiction writer. Mm-hmm. I am I am legend. Hell House were two big ones. Um and I, I I you know have a special place in my heart for writers who cross that boundary into both worlds. And uh and I think that this episode stood out for me because it's kind of a psychological one. Um and so, yeah, Rod Sterling at the start says you're looking at a tableau of reality. And that's definitely a theme in Hollywood horror is that like there are layers of reality that we're engaged in, layers of identity um, and the notion that somebody could trip and fall so deep into the the false identity that they don't believe that they're the actor anymore is a is a frightening prospect. Um, and then, yeah, his agent says like, you know, trying to relate to him. He's like, I get it, Jerry. Like some days I'd like to escape myself away from this turmoil to some simpler existence. Um, and there's that notion that like, yeah, we all are looking for escape. That's also a theme of Hollywood, like escapism um, of of escaping into a different identity, into a different world. And as you said, the actor, Jerry, like we, we first meet Arthur Curtis, the character, and he's so kind to his secretary. She's helping him plan this you know, his his daughter's getting married, he's in love with his wife, and he's planning a big trip for them. And then when he gets pulled out and told that, no, he's Jerry, we find out that he's a drunk, he owes his wife alimony that he's not paid, everybody's worried that he's having a mental breakdown. And so you do get put into this position of like, okay, is is he having a mental breakdown? Because clearly his his life outside is not so stable. And um, but in the end, it kind of ends on this supernatural note of he has <laughs> disappeared into the fictional world that was like the the better version of life um and left left the the hot left hollywood behind um and then the final shot is just the close-up of the script title which is the private world of arthur curtis um not a very original title uh, <laughs> But yeah, it's it's just what I love about Twilight Zone in general, right? It's just like little slices of like uh, of stories and ideas and like 
that that for me clearly was like I took that and kind of ran with it for my own story okay so as you were talking I I know I said I didn't have a lot of thoughts on this episode as you're talking I'm like developing thoughts here now perfect this is great yes (laughs) um so all right I'm gonna preface all of this with my experience with acting is very secondhand. Um, I have never acted in anything myself. That is not that has never been a like thing with me or a strong suit. But I've I've always found myself surrounded by actors, which is cool. Uh, one of my high school best friends is Nathan Hesse. I had him on for an episode a little while ago. He talked about his experience uh, working on the Creep Show show. Um, creep show show, whatever. <laughs> um, and working with Marilyn Manson. So that was really cool. And I've been really close with him for a long time. Uh, in college, I was friends with a guy named Darren Barnett, who's been in a bunch of things now. Um, go IMDB and whatever. Um, but I, I've always kind of like been with these people that are into acting and like trying to understand their processes and seeing them working through stuff like this. So I, I know, help me out here a little bit. I know that there are two different approaches that an actor can take to a script. They can either method act, which is where you totally engross yourself in a character and a scene and a story. And like you, you commit your whole self to that sort of a mentality while you're in shooting. Uh, and there's another mentality of, help me with a name here. I don't know what the, the other versions are. I mean, there's different acting teachers, but I can't think of what the different approaches outside of the method are. Um, okay. So I, I'm, I'm thinking just like you read the script, you get, you understand the lines and like while you're on set and shooting, like you, you perform the lines as well as you can, but there's still this divide between you and the role you're playing. Yes. Um, um, yeah. Okay. So the the Twilight Zone episode seems to like just take that whole method acting concept one step farther. Like what happens if your brain breaks and you just slip completely into this character? You go way too far into method acting uh, and you, you can't escape from it anymore. Um, I think there's a lot of commentary there about the dangers of this. And then also... I'm I'm just throwing a bunch of thoughts out here and we'll make a question out of it at the end. Yes. <laughs> um, I know another big thing in Hollywood and with the, with the big name actors that we really like is uh, a lot of times we'll have these actors that play so well on screen. They're so likable and the characters that they're portraying are just these great characters. And then you hear all these stories about behind the scenes. Those people are nightmares. Hmm. Uh, sometimes those people, as soon as the camera turns off, like they just turn into straight up dicks, uh, and, and just that duality of existence of trying to be so nice and so likable on camera. And then the camera turns off and you're this totally different person. What is the danger in this industry of just losing yourself to it? Like how, how present of a threat is that from like everything you've seen of just like getting too deep into this kind of stuff you know i i feel like i haven't seen too much danger i mean at least just certainly not first hand of like method actors and we've all heard stories of most of the stories i've heard is that people just being intolerable assholes when they're method acting um of like you hear stories of 
uh, like Jared Leto sending dead rats to people when he was playing the Joker <laughs> and um, uh, yeah. And so it's, I think there's, there's a, a lot of different ways to, to <laughs> ways to skin a cat. And, um, but I think that even if you're not like fully method acting where you're like in character, even when the camera stopped rolling, like if somebody tries to talk to you, you're going to be the character like offset to because you just have to stay in it kind of thing. Even if you're not doing that, you're just doing it between action and cut. Like the job of an actor is to, is to like inhabit that emotional space and that psychic space, at least for that amount of time. And it does like you, you do kind of have to go there. I was just listening to an interview with like Ethan Hawke, who is a fucking phenomenal actor. And yeah, um, yeah, he was talking about that. Like, the, of like when you do a dark role you like you gotta go to a dark place and like that doesn't mean that he's going like that full full method approach when the camera's not rolling but it still is it's a heavy process and I've I haven't done a ton of acting I've taken a class or two and you know to learn as a writer but for me it's not all that dissimilar from when you're writing this kind of stuff and you're trying to get into a character's you know, mind and heart and soul on the page um, of trying to kind of really fully inhabit them. But um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I hadn't thought of it from that angle before, but the writing perspective is totally there too. Cause like somebody has to create these characters to start with. And then like the, the process of creating that character, why would that be so much different than the process of another person embodying that character for a shot? If not more so, because like you as a writer have to have to know what that person's going to do next and why, whereas the actor can just kind of turn it off like, well, the script says do this next, so I'm just going to do that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Uh, you, you've got to know the Reaper in and out, know why the Reaper is going to go, you know, hunt down, uh, everybody in a cornfield. All right, let's do this. Curse of the Reaper. I made it. I made the segue happen. Break, breaking through the, the finish line at the cornfield. I love it. Uh, but yeah, starting at the finish line, working back. Yeah. Um, so if you could do the honors for us, um, let's, let's start with the sp- spoiler free as much as possible pitch for this book because i know sometimes i have listeners that'll listen to these episodes and kind of build up to uh the the author of the day or the creative of the day and then they'll kind of shut it down and be like okay i'm gonna go read their thing i like them woo awesome um (laughs) so for for anybody that's on the fence about like reading curse of the reaper here yes what's what is the setup of this story well come on down off that fence friend let me tell you, a story, <laughs> tell you a story. It's uh, Curse of the Reaper uh, tells the story of uh, Howard Browning, who um, played a slasher villain in the 80s, you know, an eight film franchise in the vein of a Friday the 13th or a Nightmare on Elm Street. Uh, but the story picks up in the year 2005 and he's in his 60s, a bit washed up, just going to conventions, signing autographs. The fans are not really coming out the way they used to. So he's thinking about just kind of retiring altogether because he can't get any other roles at his age and because people have kind of pigeonholed him as this character. Um, so he then learns that they are the studio is rebooting the Night of the Reaper film and they are kicking Howard to the curb. They are recasting the killer role. Um, so Trevor Maine is taking over 
He is an actor in his 20s who used to play a child star, who was a child star rather, um, on a sitcom, uh, kind of Full House-esque. Uh, and, but Trevor is now more famous for being, you know, a, a tabloid, uh, cover boy. Um, he's struggling with, uh, substance abuse and he is trying to revamp his image in Hollywood. And, uh, as Howard fights to reclaim the role, you know, this legacy that he created with the Reaper, the character starts to kind of infiltrate his mind and, um, start to have an influence, <laughs> to put it lightly um so i'll kind of end your pitch with this was the most fun i had with a horror book all year oh Um, thank you the it's it feels very stephen graham jones in the sense that it knows the source material it's pulling from and it is not afraid to like wink and nod at all of the horror fans in the room um it's also like very clearly telling its own story um it it doesn't feel like a total retread of stuff that's happened before like this is so much its own thing i had the rug pulled out of me it pulled out from under me i don't know why there would be a rug in that sounds very uncomfortable Um, I I had the rug pulled out from under me at least 3000 different times while I was reading this cuz I I had this really obnoxious habit as I'm reading stuff of being like oh well I know what this is going to happen let's just get to the end now oh shit I did not expect that to happen okay well now I think I know where this is going now that we've got uh, we've got all these different dominoes set up now oh shit it happened again <laughs> like you were magical with that and I it, it was so much fun so oh. starting with the praise. Thank you. <laughs> no, that means so much to me, uh, you know, especially because I wrote this originally as a screenplay like a decade ago. Um, so and the story hasn't changed all that much. Um, the biggest change was was making it more of a two hander in the novel and giving Trevor a, more, a fuller story. Um, but the plot turns and happenings you know, I mapped out a long time ago, so I've totally lost perspective on them. So when people (laughs) read it and have that experience, I'm like, oh, yeah, I forgot that I had done that. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so the spoiler tags up now, everybody, if you haven't read it, go read it and then come back to the podcast. I promise we'll wait. So first question I've got on the table here um, is, again, very similar to what we just talked about with Nope, we've got a commentary on how the industry views their contributors as expendable. Uh, we've got two very different characters showing us this approach. We've got Howard, who is kind of a victim of the ageism of Hollywood. Uh, this idea that after you reach a certain point, you're kind of like, you're, you're kind of tapped out. Like you, you've done all of the big roles that you had in you so go ahead and just go sign your autographs um and we've got trevor who is still young but he's fallen victim to um the uh the child star um the downward spiral for for lack of anything better he's fallen into drugs he's fallen into rehab so many times and he he's kind of blackballed by the industry it seems like um so what drove you to write these two different characters? They both feel 
I don't want to say this the wrong way. They both feel very personal uh, mm-hmm. in the sense that they feel so fleshed out and their thoughts are so like neither of them come across as flat characters at all. You get a sense that Howard really is speaking from experience and Trevor is really speaking from experience. Like there's a lot driving both of these characters. So how how do you get in two simultaneous headspaces at once when the headspaces are so different? Yeah. Um, thank you. Um, it, yeah, it definitely was, was a goal to, to build these parallel narratives with these two characters where, you know, one, one thing that I think helps with, with drama is that they both have the same goal, right? They both want the role mm-hmm. of the Reaper. Um, and so it puts them at odds with each other in a really clear way that helped me kind of structure the drama of then like, okay, well then how do I, make it such these characters are distinctive enough and you know it always started with Howard being like this over the hill like he played the role he's washed up um and the idea for me like because it started with the concept of like a horror remake where it gets recast and the original star becomes the character as he fights to get it back and so I was like okay well how do I make that interesting and dynamic and to me there's something interesting in the idea that like the man who played this role took it very fucking seriously. <laughs> like it's a, and the role is increasingly comedic and increasingly ridiculous, but he always treated it with sincerity and with, with like, as he says, like Shakespearean gravitas, like he needs to be able to, to really dig into the heart of this character. And like, for me, like as a writer, I always am then looking for, for contrast and parallels. Um, so it was like, well, okay, we've got the old, method actor so the 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 flip side of that coin is going to be the young kid who just kind of fell into it at a young age when he was like nine years old he he, his parents took him to an audition as as most of these child actors it's just like and then his life was never the same again like he never had a normal childhood he never actually took an acting class like he was just a cute kid who got cast and then was thrust into this world um and yeah, it, it for me like was, I, I think every character is some version of me or some aspect of myself. So I definitely have the pretentious Howard in me and the one who like wants all art to be like serious and taken seriously. And then I have the kind of more flippant <laughs> Trevor in me of just like, just it's fucking ridiculous. Like, let's be serious. Come on. <laughs> um, and uh and yeah, I think cer- certainly channeling my own just like disillusionment, anxieties and insecurities and and moments of low self-worth, like for me as a writer, like going into those places and and trying to make it as real as possible, channeling it into a character is is how I at least feel like I can give some sense of reality to them. Um, and then, yeah, the the way that then it kind of triangulates with the Reaper when you realize like we're in spoilers but yeah the these like two parallel tracks of howard and trevor have been kind of bouncing off of each other until they like full-on collide and you realize that the reaper is 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 the the third kind of actor in the play um to a certain degree yeah i i undersold that to start with that there's these two characters battling it out but the reaper is is 
living and breathing, isn't it? <laughs> um, <laughs> you have two wolves inside of you. Oh shit, yeah. there's a third. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I I felt like the gradual reveal that the Reaper was this real palpable monster was handled very well because for the whole first half of the book uh you play it like it could be this mental delusion of howard's um we we've got all of these kind of red herrings scattered about with like he's got these mental health issues he's got this past with was it dementia or alzheimer's alzheimer's yeah Alzheimer's yeah. that that's that's coming on and it's on set and he's having to leave these sticky notes everywhere just to keep himself on track and we've kind of got this easy out um as a viewer um as a reader of for whatever reason this has already clicked in my mind that this is a movie that exists <laughs> <laughs> I love that energy let's keep putting that into the world <laughs> when it happens and I am totally convinced it's going to happen like I, I it's just gonna be like, yeah, that that's a thing, right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, but anyhow, um, but but the stage is very well set with um, this easy easy explanation for what's going on, and then I really enjoy in the second half where the, there is no plot point or there is no story trajectory that you took the easy way out of it doesn't seem mm. like every time we get to these crossroads of like okay then the story could naturally progress from here um we've got this scene where trevor comes to howard's house and he's he's talking to him about it he's kind of like giving up the role like you're the real reaper i need to go go get help and there, there's this really easy road to a finish line there of like okay just let him walk out the door <laughs> just let howard take this role back let the reaper be happy oh shit he just brained him with this award and now trevor's in the basement well now things are complicated all over again um and it it feels like the right move right like the the reaper wouldn't just let trevor walk out the door but at the same time it makes all of these levels of the story more complex and more uh more interesting for the reader and i just i don't know i i really appreciated how there was always one more level that it felt like you could take it to even when um i i felt like it it would have been so easy to just like tie everything up in a neat little package for yourself. Mm. And there's one more scene I want to build up to there, but I, I want to give you a chance to respond to that first before I get to it. Oh, thank you. No, I appreciate it. Um, and it, yeah, I, I definitely wanted to consciously play with certain tropes as well, for sure of the, like, is the, is the character just losing their mind? Um, and to, to certainly up, upend those tropes. Cause that would be like playing with the question of, is it psychological or is it supernatural to me is, is always a, an exciting and terrifying line to be treading because I, to me, like it doesn't matter what the answer is. Um, it's, it's just a scary question to explore, but I think that, uh, yeah. And I think for me, like I'm, I, I always try to, you know, it's, it's a tricky thing as a writer when you know where you're going to, when you decide where the story's going to go, but then your job is to, to, to lead the the reader down a different expectation or to try to like, I always talk about in, in, in workshops about like hope and fear are the two kind of levers that you're playing with, with your audience of like, what do you hope is going to happen? What do you fear is going to happen in this scene? Like you hope 
that Trevor's going to just be able to walk out of this room and it's going to be okay. Um, and then the worst fear comes true, which is that he gets knocked over the head and, and held captive. Um, and that, yeah. And that you want, you, you know, I, I'm, I'm always happy when people like talk about like rooting for characters that like you, you become invested in, in what they want. And then when you find out that they're again, like there's their Howard and Trevor are kind of protagonist antagonist to a certain degree until you, it reveals that the Reaper is really the, a sort of <laughs> puppeteer of sorts with both of them. Um, but it's, it's always fun as a writer to kind of make those discoveries along the way as well. And then kind of once you, once you do, or at least once I do, then I'm like, okay, how can I go back and kind of cover up my tracks <laughs> just so that people <laughs> don't see that this is where we're headed. Um, even in like pitching the book, like at one point we talked about, like, do we, do we mention like misery as a reference point? But I was like, I don't, I think that might give away that it's going to lead to somebody being tied up against their will kind of thing. And I feel like that's a nice thing to keep, keep in the back pocket with this one. Yeah. Oh, I think that was absolutely the right call because that whole basement setup caught me totally off guard. Like that, that was one of the things that, yeah. Yeah. Um, so it, this wasn't a question I realized I had until just now. I guess plotter more than or pantser more than plotter. I am a big plotter, um, like especially coming from screenwriting, because as a professional screenwriter, part of the job is you always have to deliver an outline before you're allowed to go to script. Um, yeah. So uh, I think for me. For me, though, there's an element of. I guess part of it is when you've when you like when like when you've gone through so many stories that like you're you're pantsing as you plot in your brain. I guess is what what it is <laughs> for me that like I can still have fun discovering as I'm plotting, and then the the trick is to find the sweet spot of having an outline that's like just enough, knowing that you don't have all the answers figured out, but you have the 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 scenes sort of laid out and that there's room for discovery along the way and there's room for those little little things to reveal themselves and detours to happen um and characters especially in fiction writing i feel like it's so cool the way that they this this is going to sound probably very pretentious and nerdy but just like the way that characters reveal themselves as you're writing them like they're just to answer questions like there's a specific moment i remember with danny Trevor's sponsor um when when Trevor relapses and he calls Danny and he confesses that that he relapsed um and there was a plot point because I a plot thing to reckon with which is that I knew Danny couldn't come and help um because I needed to have Trevor on his own so that it would send him to Howard's and as I was writing the scene Danny just spoke through my fingers and just said I have my daughter tonight otherwise I'd come get you but here's what you need to do and then I was just like, of course, of course, Danny has a daughter and he's divorced. And that's like, it just like painted a picture of the character that I could not have like sat down outside of the story and mapped out. Like it just had to come through the scene kind of thing. Okay. So I think we've kind of beat around this question a little bit already, but just pitching it to you very straightforward. Now I've talked about the twists a bunch and you've talked a little bit about like, how we get to the how we get to the twists and how uh, you you need to make sure that the reader's expectations are set up a certain way so the twist hits different. 
that is one of my favorite parts about this book is just how many well-executed twists there are in it. So I feel like uh, it is a valid question for you, especially uh, for what makes a good twist? Because we all know those movies that the twist just feels shoehorned in at the end. Like, Oh, yeah. it was a dream the whole time. Like get the fuck out of here. Yeah. Um, or, or, or like the, all of these totally invalid things like that. All of your twists in this book felt earned, felt like they drove the plot forward. Is there a trick to that? Is there some golden rule you try to stick to? Um, I, I think as far as a golden rule, it's always like the events always the plot has to come out of the character. Um, and I feel like a lot of movies that don't work are because like the characters are just kind of pawns in the writer's con- constructed plot rather than really the character's choices are are what are driving the plot to unfold. And so for me, like having characters that have a clear drive really helps that and um and that they're played against each other really helps that but i think also with twists like it you know i always i always uh reference the sixth sense of course because that's like one of the like the most (laughs) classic twists um that just like hit everybody um and i think the reason that works so well is because like the the film is still compelling without the twist there's still the story of the movie is this psychologist who's trying to help a kid who sees dead people. And there's a whole compelling narrative there that, and he's also dealing with his own divorce is is what we think is happening at least, or uh, or rather that he's, (laughs) he and his wife are distant ever since this patient accident. Um, And I feel like a good twist, if you take it back as like a, a lens then to look at every moment that came before it all has to feel like, of course, of course, of course. I like, essentially you have to, if it has to make you feel like I was watching a movie that I didn't even know I was watching. Like I I was watching a story unfold that I didn't realize was happening, but of course it was absolutely happening now that I, now that I know this piece of information, whereas bad twists are just like, especially happen. I feel like in psychological horrors where it's just like, treading water for 90 minutes weird things are happening weird things are happening weird things are happening it's weird because it's a dream and you're like i i don't care because i was bored for 90 minutes because there wasn't an actual narrative the way that there is psychologist helping kid kind of thing so and again that comes back to like character right you're just invested in these characters and that can also distract you from the obvious twist probably too so i don't want to get on my sixth sense horse um, I just, I did a podcast about the sixth sense, um, just yesterday as we're filming this, or it'll be about a month from now. And when, when this thing airs, everybody go to the ne- go to the podcast, the necronama.com. And you can hear two hours worth of my sixth sense bullshit. That's so funny for, for you. I want to try to take your answer and I want to try to put it in the context of one of the twists from the book that caught me totally off guard. Yeah. Uh, Maybe you can talk us through what you were just saying, like with this in mind, the big spoilers here go away. If you (laughs) haven't read this book and you're still here, what are, why are you still here? Please. In the battle at the very end of the book in the cornfield, you killed her. 
Um, and I feel so bad. What was her name again? Sophie. Sophie, you killed Sophie. And at first, when I read that page, I closed the book and put it down like, the fuck, Brian? (laughs) But the more I thought about it and the more I kind of like processed what was happening, full honesty, I went to sleep after that page and woke up the next morning and was like, all right, I'm going to finish it now. It makes so much sense that she could not survive this story. Yeah. After the fact, it like it works from Trevor's perspective, from Howard's perspective, from the Reaper's perspective. I get it now, but there was that initial gut punch of like, no. Yeah. <laughs> so so everything you were just saying about a twist with with like the characters driving it, with it being interesting and invested up until that point, like can you talk us through how you set that one up and like why it was such, why it was the right choice for the book and everything else? Yeah, no, absolutely. I think, uh, and one, one phrase that's I picked up along the way is like that, the idea that endings should be both surprising and inevitable, uh, which almost sounds like a paradox, but it really just means that like, yeah, it needs to catch you by surprise. But as you just described your experience, you have to look back and say like, of course it had to be that, but I just, I'm still surprised and maybe don't want it to be have to be that. Um, I think honestly, part of part of it sometimes is like a, a process of elimination in different areas of writing where you're like, okay, what are all the things that could happen? And let me at least narrow down like the the unsatisfying versions of this ending. Um, especially when you're getting to like three people in a cornfield with with some kind of with the Reaper a f- force uh that yeah is also in play (laughs) um and i always saw this story as a as a tragedy which i think helps helped me kind of decide the where it was going to end and how it was going to end and ultimately you know page one of the book says the reaper always rises again and i just knew that the reaper it just felt like the reaper had to win um I knew that much and I knew that I wanted it to, to ultimately pass from Howard to Trevor. Um, and so then the question becomes, well, does, does Howard kill Sophie? And then I think at, at some versions of the screenplay, that was what happened. Howard kills Sophie and then Trevor kills Howard for it. But once I cracked the idea that like, no, we're going to see, we're going to see that the reaper has compromised Trevor's mind and kind of the final the final fig leaf of it all that that leads to him killing Sophie um is like the ultimate heart wrenching like defeat that to me then it's like yeah there, then there's no way Trevor's coming back from that um like that's that's the the fate worse than death um so part of it is just being really sadistic, I think, as I say this out loud. <laughs> but it is also about upending genre tropes as well, right? That I knew that Sophie, like at a certain point, I was like, she's starting to feel like she has the potential to be a final girl in that, in terms of what the trope usually is. So if I lean into that and have a false moment of final girlism and then really pull it out, I'll pull out the rug there. Um, yeah. It'll be an even further way to fall because you know ultimately this is a meta slasher that's not about that trope it's about a very different you know tract in in the hollywood horror of it all um 
And I feel like I, I also intentionally want to do that with other characters like like Joan and Danny, who, you know, I think in a lot of old, especially old slashers from the 80s, like you're usually rooting for the slasher and like you rejoice when they kill like, you know, the dumb jock or the mean girl like you. uh it's almost like satisfying for those those shitty characters to get killed. But in this story, like I wanted to create the contrast of, okay, in the Reaper film clips, which I don't think we've mentioned, but there's screenplay segments throughout the book yes. of all the Reaper films. And they're very much those 80s slashers and there's frat boys getting their heads pulled off and all of that. And it's really over the top gore. But I knew that part of what I was building there was, once we get to the last quarter of the book and people start dying in the book narrative, I want it to really feel different. Like I want it to feel like, Oh fuck, no, these are real people that I care about. Like Trevor sponsor and Howard's only friend. And like, I, I just want, I just want to hurt people. Like, <laughs> I guess it's my goal is yeah. like make them make you really care about these people and, and, and then put the hurt on. And, um, yeah, again, it's a tragedy. I was like, there's lots of pretentious references to Shakespeare plays throughout it through Howard's lens. But again, <laughs> like, uh, that's that's coming from me. Um, I just wanted that to be the the arc of it, I guess. Yeah, there's always this fun situation with horror films where like you cheer when people are dying and that makes you feel very bad but they're also fictional characters and like there's this huge degree of separation between you and like anybody you're watching die on screen like like reading a reading something in the newspaper if newspapers still existed uh reading something in the newspaper about somebody dying and you like not really having a reaction to it versus an aunt or an uncle dying and like oh now i'm gonna have a reaction because i knew that person yeah like the the book plays that way too with those scripted scenes of like yay kill them all and then we get into the the quote-unquote real life story and it's like no don't kill anyone stop Don't kill Tom Savini. Cough. Yeah. Tone, cough. <laughs> um, totally unrelated. <laughs> so that's another question I've got for you. Um, have we managed to get Curse of the Reaper into anybody's hands that it feels like we're referencing here? Has Tom Savini read this? Has Robert England read this? Like it has. It has not, as far as I know, landed specifically yeah. in those hands, but it is. <laughs> It is landing, I can only speak very vaguely, but it is landing in hands. <laughs> and okay. uh, yes, they're, the wheels are in motion, but as things in Hollywood tend to be, they move very slowly. Um, but it, there's a very promising track that we're on with it at the moment that hopefully cool. pans out. Um, yeah, it's... It's been a, a trippy journey on that front because it started as a screenplay, like I mentioned, and then uh, to come full back to full circle to, okay, now let's turn try to turn this book into a movie. Yeah, that's the coolest. All right, I'm going to shut up before I accidentally like push you into NDA territory. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, the, the vaguely referenced thing you are vaguely referencing, holy shit, yes. Um, but okay putting a lid on it <laughs> um, uh okay i i had one more oh oh oh, oh. um 
that was my my concluding question for Curse of the Reaper. Uh, unless you have something else you would like to talk about here, is there any other Curse of the Reaper-y thing that we want to dive into before I give you my last question with it? Um, I don't. Oh, just one thing to wrap up the yeah, the ending, the satisfying ending of it all too, is just to say that yes, you know, thinking of character arcs like for Howard and Trevor, like Howard at the start want is is considering retiring like he just wants to rest like he's exhausted he's beat down and then for most of the story like he he's not getting a chance to sleep because of, because of the reaper and so in the end i give him what he wants like he gets his final rest and it's like a bittersweet character gets what they want but it's not exactly the version that you expect and similar with trevor like we he wants to get sober and say and stay sober and and in the final chapter we find out that like He's been sober ever since he escaped Howard's clutches. Um, that that experience certainly sobered him up, um, and he no longer really struggles with his addiction. Because, but uh, sadly, it's because he's now reckoning with a big, a much more heavy weight. Um, so that's part of what I think about when I think about character arcs. Is like, okay, what's that? What do they want at the start, and how can you give some version of that so it's like a bittersweet kind of ending? But that's all. Would you say that they are on top of the mountain with all eyes on them and they'll never wake up from yes. it? Boom! <laughs> we did it. Full circle. Uh, <laughs> made it happen. All right. Um, yeah, that that is really good, though, that this, like, very monkey paw sort of wish fulfillment like ah you wanted to be the star again like you get to be the star but hey. yeah um i like it i like it a lot um okay so final question i had for you here and this is not so much a question as just something something to talk about um the curse of the reaper has already transcended the pages of the novel we have had a uh, i'm gonna go ahead and give it the uh the oversell of a stage play adaptation oh. once before with uh <laughs> chance for playing the reaper and uh, a bunch of other people worked in too yes um uh, how much fun was that it- to see uh, a bunch of a bunch of people in Kentucky. <laughs> it was uh, doing the reaper. It was so much fun. This was at actually in uh, in Richmond, Virginia. The, uh, oh, Virginia. the folks at Barnes and Noble Libby Place. Um, <laughs> it was just uh, yeah. James and Tiff are fantastic. They organized this event with a bunch of horror authors and included readings. And I just knew that for my reading, I'd done a couple readings before where it was just me, you know. So I was like you know, I usually do a segment of the novel. I can't really do the screenplay segment. So this was an opportunity. I was like, I'm not going to pass this up to stage a, a, a script segment. And of course, Chance jumped at the the opportunity to play the Reaper. Um, we did the first screenplay segment around the campfire. So Nat Cassidy was the was t- telling the story of Lester Jensen. Uh, Rachel Harrison was one of the counselors. And Michael Seidlinger was the punk who gets killed by the Reaper. So these are writers who I adore. <laughs> their their work is fantastic, and they were all game to jump in and do this this stage play of the book. Um, so it was just it was so much fun. Um, if the Curse of the Reaper gets adapted into a movie, TV show, anything else, what are the chances of Chance going full Howard Browning on us? Well, you know, <laughs> I, I warned him about this. <laughs> 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 he's 
you know, he'll he'll have to audition just like everybody else. And I hope that he doesn't go too method with it. Um, but he really he really pulled it off. He's got the voice for it, too. Yeah, he'll he'll go into the audition and he'll try to convince everybody else that he's there to judge them. Exactly. And then he'll, uh, he'll choke out an actress or something. <laughs> oh. Chant, please don't. We love you too much. <laughs> Um, all right. So cool that this has been so much fun. I've loved getting to meet you and talk to you. And this was a blast. Likewise. Um, is there, is there anything else that you would like to kind of pitch to our listeners? Like what's next for you? What should we be on the lookout for? Uh, what are your socials? Where can we find you to interact with you some more? Yes. Um, I am on Instagram and Twitter. Uh, my handle is at Brian McWriter. Um, and that is also my website is brianmcwriter.com. Um, you can find some short stories I've had published and nonfiction pieces there as well. Uh, and next up, uh, this episode airs in January, right? Our schedule is all over the okay. place right now. I'm going to say yes, January <laughs> sounds correct to me. <laughs> so I think I can share, yeah, that um, I will be doing a novella for uh, Alan Lestufka at Shortwave Publishing. Um, he just announced cool. today that uh, he's doing a, a series of novellas called Killer VHS. Um, so they all are kind of themed around those old school VHS movie covers that we were all haunted by. And he's allowing writers to <laughs> kind of use that as a jumping off point. So I my book will be coming out uh, next year around Christmas time because... It may or may not be a Christmas slasher. Uh, and Ooh. I am just having so much fun with it. Um, yeah, it's <laughs> been really fun, especially to do a novella, which is a form that I have not tackled yet and feels very yep. fitting for a sort of one night uh, murder fest. <laughs> Sweet. I. Uh- I will be on the lookout for that. We need more Christmas horror. Like every year, my rotation is basically like Anna and the Apocalypse and uh, what's the other? And Krampus. Yep. Of all things. And Black Christmas, of course. But we, we need some fresh blood in here. I know Asmund just dropped yes. a, uh, a murderous elves book whose title is eluding me. It's um, uh, Return of the Living Elves. Um, there it is. I was just at a, an event with him with the Horror Writers Association, um, an event called Season Screamings. It was a holiday yes. themed horror convention. Um, so now I have gone full meta because I am at conventions signing, <laughs> signing books <laughs> for and there were a few people who had come like like I was not there one day and somebody texted me was like somebody's looking for you and they they want you to come sign a book and I was like this is this it's happening I'm like, <laughs> just like Arthur in in the Twilight Zone episode I'm just going to retreat into the fictional world of of Howard Browning Please don't <laughs> Please don't for so many reasons one I I do not want your cat to die <laughs> Um, or your 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 dog in this case yes um but also you as a human being like you should probably be fine too uh, you know. yeah <laughs> mostly the animals mostly the animal though um oh man we should have thrown that spoiler in here does the dog die no but the cat does yes um, upset, i think that upset most most <laughs> readers <laughs> Yeah, I was mad at you about that for for a whole 10 minutes and then you 
pulled another twist on me. <laughs> um, all right, I need to wrap up this episode before I keep going. Um, but Brian, this was a wonderful time. You were a joy to have on uh, the podcast. I hope everybody reads your book and your novella and goes back and watches Fuller House episodes. Do you get any residuals from that? Like yep. if, if you write something like two years later on, do, do you get kickbacks? I do get residuals. And the funny thing about, so I only wrote one episode, but my episode happens to have a song in it. Um, and so, and I wrote, you know, lyrics that then got rewritten by an actual songwriter, but technically since it's my episode and I wrote a version, I am the songwriter. So I actually get tiny royalties as a songwriter because of (laughs) the song sung by the Fernando character as he proposes to Kimmy Gibbler. So little strange slice of life. So so next time I drag you on here, we're going to hit the medium of screenwriting and novel writing and novella writing and songwriting. Exactly. We'll I will bust out my acoustic guitar and you will regret it. <laughs> <laughs> Looking forward to it. Um, for listeners, though, this is going to pretty much wrap us up for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. Please don't forget to like or subscribe or, I don't know, get possessed by the uh, streaming service of your choice. Clank, clank, clank. Uh, we will, uh, we'll talk to you next time. Foreigners tied bells to everybody in the morgue. So if they heard a ting, they knew somebody down there wasn't quite ready to go.